Welcome back. I'm your host, Peter Medlin, and you're listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. Just like pretty much everything else you've been seeing, reading, or listening to lately, this episode's going to be a little bit different. For starters, I'm recording this not from the studio, but from under a blanket in the living room in my apartment. So if you hear any birds chirping or a refrigerator humming in the background, that is what that is. Uh, We're going to be touching on a bit of the coronavirus and the seismic impact it's had on education. Uh, I talked to this week's guest about his experience so far at the top of the show, and you can bet that we're going to be talking about it much, much more in future episodes as this goes on and in today's news roundup. But in the meantime, I'm inviting you to be a part of the show because during this COVID-19 crisis, we want to hear from you. Students, parents, teachers, shoot us an email at teacherslounge at niu.edu and tell us what it's been like learning or teaching from home, helping your kids with their e-learning. Just tell us how you're feeling, how you're holding up with the whole situation. And if you want to, you can record your thoughts into your phone with your voice memos app and then send us the file, send the recording to teacherslounge at niu.edu and we'll include it in the next episode of this show. But for now, on this week's show is Jay Rehack. He's a Chicago Public Schools language arts teacher. He and his classes at Whitney Hung High School are the co-authors of over a dozen class-sourced novels. The first one they published in 2014 was actually the first high school novel of its kind called 30 Days of Empathy. And the stories based on their real lives were poignant and kind of scary for Jay. These kids tell these stories and you're like, holy smokes, I can't believe you're even... You even showed up to class today. I mean, you started just admiring people for, you know, showing up. Jay and I talked about why empathy is his life's mission. We talked about childhood trauma, the writing process, and since he's the author of 10 short plays to read before you die, he gives us a few recommendations of short plays we can plow through while we're hunkered down at home for a while. It's a really great conversation. I'm really proud of it, guys, and I hope that you stay tuned to hear that. Well, in case we didn't have enough news this week, it was actually the primary election, obviously, in Illinois this week. Joe Biden won over Senator Bernie Sanders 59% to 36%. And uh, not too long ago, only about a week or two ago, even though it feels more like a year, Dr. Jill Biden, Joe's wife, who is a community college English teacher, actually, made an appearance at a conference of the Illinois Education Association. And she gave a speech and got to meet some teachers on behalf of her husband's campaign. She detailed Joe's education plan. She touched on teacher concerns and talked about his plan to increase funding as well as make community colleges tuition free. And talking about her experience as a community college teacher and a former public high school teacher, she led that to a critique of the controversial current education secretary, Betsy DeVos. Our secretary of education will be an educator who actually knows what it's like to be in the public school. Jill Biden also addressed teacher concerns from the need for more mental health resources and student debt relief. Joe's vision is bold and progressive and most importantly, achievable. Because anyone can have a plan. Like I tell my students all the time, it's not enough to want to do well. You have to turn in the essay. You have to do the reading. You have to deliver on the promises you make. Yvette Ramirez is a teacher at Bremen High School in Cook County who was at the event. Like many teachers, she actually supports Senator Bernie Sanders. For her, it's because of Medicare for All. How can you learn if you're sick? How can you learn if you're constantly struggling to find ends meet and are not able to provide for your family? All right, now it's time for a coronavirus news roundup. 
Obviously, Illinois schools are closed until at least March 30th, but a recent State Board of Education presentation hinted that the closures could be extended even further with cases doubling in the state overnight from Wednesday to Thursday. As with all of this news, just keep following WNIJ.org and your local news agencies for updates because things very well may have changed by the time you're hearing this. And many Illinois universities are moving to virtual instruction for the remainder of their semesters. NIU was one of the latest to follow suit after a statement from the president, Lisa Freeman. She said there are possible exceptions for a small number of labs, internships, clinical and practicum programs, but there's no official word yet on what those courses may be. Jacob Chan is an NIU student, and he says he's not sure how his classes will translate to the new online format. No, I'm an actor, so uh, there's been contact, uh, but it's not, everybody's still trying to figure it out. NIU students will be allowed to continue living on campus if they want to, and the university also announced on Thursday that it is postponing its spring commencement ceremony. The University of Illinois canceled their spring commencement ceremony for all three of their campuses and other schools across the state, including North Central College in Naperville, have done the same. All right, now it's time for my wonderful conversation with Chicago public schools teacher and author Jay Rehack. All right, well, Jay, I, I definitely want to get into the basics about you and, and all of your writing and all the novels and everything like that, but I feel like it would be weird not to mention some of the coronavirus stuff up top and just to ask yeah. you, I mean, you're a Chicago public schools teacher, kind of what it's been like for you, what your experiences look like over the last couple of days, especially today. Yeah, my job has been to try to make sure everybody feels safe, even at the same time that I don't know, you know, just say for not, you know, I mean, we're trying to be the the face of um, calm, and uh, I think that it, it is proper, but that's what a teacher does, and so my kids have nothing that stress, but I, I got to tell you one quick funny story was I told them last week, and I, by the way, I'm 63 years old, and I said to them, you know, I'm not worried about you guys, because you're young, and I said, I'm not worried about me. I said, it's really for old people that are going to, you know, that are vulnerable. And everybody just looked at me. You are so oblivious to the fact that you're old. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, the kids just stopped, and they just started laughing then. You know, I said, oh, I guess I am in that demographic. <laughs> but these are really smart kids that I work with. They've looked for uh, reassurance for me, and I've tried to be as honest with them as I can be, which is to say, I think you guys are going to be all right. I think, you know, if we do what we're supposed to do, everybody's going to be okay. It's just a question of, you know, how long, et cetera. And I said, on the other hand, I don't want to be, you know, tell you something I, I don't know because I don't, I don't know. So for a while I was predicting that they would shut the schools down and kids couldn't believe it. I said, it's going to happen at some point. We use Google Classroom in our, in our uh, classes, so we assign students work that they may or may not do, and I told them not to worry about it if they don't, but it's not a bad diversion anyway if they do that, you know? Yes, yeah, so thankfully for you, language arts is, is something that, you know, can translate a little bit better to an e-learning, Google Classroom type situation, probably. Absolutely, and the other thing is, Peter, is that I do a, I, I teach a class called 21st Century Multimedia Literacy, where we do tele, a weekly television show. We do newspaper, we do website, we do uh, podcasts. And I told them that we're still going to do the show. They're just going to send me video clips, and I'm going to put them together here at my house. And uh, I'm going to broadcast on Wednesdays, every Wednesday, until this thing's over. I may wind up using old video and just calling it Best of Dub TV, but that's what we're going to do. The show must go on. Yes, exactly, exactly. You know, 
letting people know that I think is it's just a, a way of saying this is going to continue. I do feel very badly for my students, though, because you may remember that the Chicago Teachers Union went on strike last year. Of course. Which is to say in the fall. And we missed 11 school days, which really threw the kids off. And then now they've got this coronavirus thing, and they're just feeling besieged by, uh, you, know, what, you know, what's going on. You know? And I said, I, I really, I know this is the weirdest year of my life as a teacher. You know, yeah. Absolutely. I was just interviewing a superintendent at, at Amboy, so one of the uh, more rural school districts uh, sort of around us in northern Illinois, and I talked to him on Thursday afternoon. And on mm-hmm. Thursday afternoon, I asked him about the likelihood of the schools getting shut down across the state for an extended period of time. And even as I said it then, it sounded kind of crazy. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the next day, it, it all happened. and it all, it, So, like, Thursday afternoon – last week feels like a year and a half ago now. I agree with you 100%. Every day seems like a year or whatever, you know, like we just don't know the next day, you know, and that's the way the kids are feeling too. And, you know, they're sort of, like I said, asking me what's going to happen next. And I go, I don't know. I said, see, in Chicago, we're supposed to go on spring break April April 3rd. Although we're supposed to come back March 30th, which I don't believe is going to happen. Mm-hmm. And they go, when do you think we're going to come back? And I said, well, I, I'm starting to think, like, you know, May, if we're lucky. That's what, I, that's what I think, but I don't know, you know? Yeah, I mean, everyone's, we can all make our guesses or projections, but at the end of the day, there's really none of us that, that, that know when normalcy will be back at all, but... I think that this is a good transition. I think we've done. I think we've done enough Corona to talk for for now. Okay. I think let's All let's right. get into the, something else. But so you mentioned that you know that you were at uh, at Whitney Young High School in Chicago, right? Yes. And how long have you been at Whitney Young now? I've only been there for twenty seven years. That's it. So still getting the lay of the land. Still getting the lay of the land. Uh, prior to that, just as an FYI, I worked for four years at an elementary school called Daniel Webster Elementary on the west side of Chicago, and then before that, I worked. For four years in the Catholic school system up in a in an area in Chicago called Uptown, a place called St. Thomas of Canterbury. So I've only been in the business for 35 years, and you're 100% right. I'm still trying to learn, you know, what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm doing the best I can do as I go. Yeah, and one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about was uh, your class source novels that you guys have been working. On. And how long, Jay? How long have you been? How long have you been doing these? Well, thank you for asking me about that, Peter. I um, the first novel that we actually novel that we wrote was back in 2014, and it really was honestly the first crowdsourced high school novel ever published. I know because we looked it up, and uh, you can Google it. It's we're the first ones to do it. Before then, I was doing books. I was doing uh, back in 2005. I was making producing grammar books. You know, getting them published through. Uh, Lulu.com. Now I use uh, KDP and Amazon and all that. But back in the day, we were putting together books that way. But the first time we did a novel was back in 2014. It was called 30 Days to Empathy, and it wound up being the Chicago Writers Association Book of the Year, which was very nice for us. And uh, yeah, it was, it was a good book. And I, I you guys you know, have... followed up with a number of other ones with the students. What are you at right now? How many novels have you guys put out? 14. 14. Is there anything? I actually, uh, real fast, I want to yeah, work please. on a novel while we're done on uh, a, like positive zombies. I'm going to be writing a book, hopefully, with my students while we're out, a novel where we're going to have like uh, zombies, you know, getting a virus, but they turn into good people and, and whatever. It's, 
It's my latest idea, and uh, based on the coronavirus thing. But that's right, positivity zombies. Right, I, right, positive, right, exactly. Because They've, I don't want them to be depressed, you know. Yeah, but, you know, we've done it a, a number of times, and it's you know, it's it's a great exercise. The kids get a chance to uh, be published, but also um, collaborate, which I think is the most important part of the 21st century. Is you got to be able to collaborate. You can do that. I think you can survive. And if you can't, I think you're doomed. That's that's my my hypothesis anyway. Yeah, and you know, I was definitely I had actually. I watched the uh, the TED talk that you gave that was oh. that was sort of about uh, thirty days of empathy and, and all that stuff. And so I'm curious, how many about how many kids per class is it like around thirty or so typically that contribute to one of the novels? Yes, usually thirty. That's about right. Yeah, it, it's it, that's whatever my class size is. And what we try to do, Peter, is we try to make sure everybody does it. So back in the day when I first did the first book, Thirty Days of Empathy. You know, I think I told you that was, or you may have seen in the TED Talk, but it was about a very arrogant suburban uh, white boy, actually, who goes to Chicago and thinks that he's smarter than everybody else, but then he magically lives one day in the life of each of his of his, of his classmates. Right. I and, think that you had mentioned that. he finds out that he's not as smart as he thought he was. But Yeah. But I had one kid who did not write it. And we, we gave everybody, it was about a three-month project to, to put it together, and he hadn't met the deadline. I wanted to include everybody, and finally he did it, and it wound up being one of the best chapters in the book. And then when we won an award, he came out and read the chapter. It was just a beautiful thing, and I just I just remember thinking, this guy is aggravating me because he's taking so long, but when he finally got it out, it was, it was profoundly beautiful. So sort of a lesson to me that, you know, if I could just be patient, some of these kids will come through. A lot of kids will come through, you know? You remember what his chapter was about? Oh, yeah, very much. He was he was a math genius, but he, he loved to, uh, or he didn't love to, but he was a graffiti uh, specialist, and he was also uh, a Polish immigrant. His father and mother were very hard on him, et cetera, and he told this sort of harrowing tale of going into some of the bowels of uh, Chicago and, and tagging you know, old factories, et cetera, but in, in the in the telling of it, he was explaining some of his math, you know, life, and, you know, he was living this double life, because I certainly didn't know any of that, you know, I thought he was just, I just had no idea what he was, he was like tutoring by day, and also tagging by night, and, you know, and living this very uh, difficult life with his folks, and, uh, you know, economic stress, it, it, was, it, was, it was very powerful. And I know that in the TED Talk, you mentioned that when you started that 30 Days of Empathy project, you kind of thought that they were going to approach it and try to make it funny, right? Like a Freaky yes. Friday type of story? Yes. And that is not the direction that it went in? Yes, I was so happy. And I asked, well, happy is one thing, but I was also scared out of my mind when I read some of these chapters and I would ask these kids, is this really a day of your life? I mean, it wasn't you know, necessarily a typical day, but the, the girl in my back in my class who slept and it turned out she was basically living in a drug den and working at a subway at night to pay rent and, you know, trying to keep guys from jumping on her, you know, in the middle of the night. And I was like, no wonder you sleep in my class. You know, you're exhausted from from the life you're living, you know. But it was a true story, she told me. And, you know, she had gotten to counseling and everything else. But I'm just saying, some of these kids tell these stories, and you're like, holy smokes, I can't believe you even showed up to class today. I mean, I started just admiring people for, you know, showing up. And I think that's an important thing for teachers to realize. You don't know what these kids have to do to get to school. 
Yeah, and I think that's definitely a way to to get to know the people in your class and and to build empathy. And and when I was looking at the, especially with 30 Days of Empathy and and redoing some other research, and I I saw the podcast that you have, the, the, the Tell Me What Happened podcast. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I, I clicked on the, the, just the most recent one, and literally in the first 30 seconds you were talking about how – because the, the, that is about, like, uh, people talking about their childhood trauma and kind of how yes. it affects and how it impacted who they are, right? Yes. And, and one of the things that you said in there was about how basically, like, you know, you feel like you've suffered some childhood trauma, sure, and, and that it's you know, kind of helped shape who you are. And then you said, and hopefully that makes me more empathetic than I otherwise yes. would be. And I that I immediately tied back to the thirty days of empathy, and then on your Twitter bio, there's something about empathy too. So that is really like the thesis statement for you, right? That is kind of uh, something that's that's a phrase that you use a lot in your life. Is is empathy? That's something very important to you. Thank you, Barry. I, I agree with you 100. percent I've decided that that is my like uh, um, motto or something my, like that. Yeah, life life mission. You know, what I mean, it's like trying to get people to. Um, be more empathetic, and I include myself in that. By the way, it's not like I think I'm the most empathetic person. I'm just trying all the time. Because every once in a while, I get really aggravated with a kid, and then I find out something that some backstory, and I'm like, oh man, you know, what a little, I just, I just, get, you know, ripped into the kid for something, you know, being late or something. I don't know what, and then I realize, yeah, you know, I can't even believe what this going for, you know. So it, it's on me to become more empathetic, but I think that is my life mission. Is Finding what people, you know, you know, finding people's backstories, hearing about that from your students and other people, and and what they're going through in their lives, is that kind of uh, the crux of why you started that that podcast too? Absolutely, I think that if we tell each other stories, if you know, if, if I had the time or you had the the time to tell me your one of your childhood experiences, I would forever um, know you better. And I would have a deeper understanding of who you are just based on that one story. That is my hypothesis is that you tell me one one profound story from your childhood and then I will never ever look at you the same way and I will have, you know, more respect for you, but also I'll have a deeper understanding of who you are. That's that's my deep belief. Yeah, there's and there's something instead of it just being any story from your life, it being specific to your childhood, I feel like adds an extra element of, of vulnerability to it, right? Like like all of childhood has? Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, we read we read in my class we read Black Boy by Richard Wright. And that's basically, you know, his childhood stories and his adult stories and you know, we read various books and almost all the books that we read, the author is telling us some childhood experience that uh, impacts them. You know, I just finished with the students I am not your perfect Mexican daughter and uh, it's you know, 15-year-old girl going through quite a bit. And um, when people ask Erica Sanchez, the author, whether, it, you know, it's a true story or not, she says, well, some of it is, but not all of it. And I understand that. You know, I mean, we all fictionalize our lives to a certain extent. But but when you tell some honest story about yourself as best you can, it's very moving. It, it, it's, there's no there's no way around it. You know, when we're, we're having this conversation and touching a lot about childhood trauma and stories from our childhood and you know one of the reasons why one of the reasons why I want to start this podcast that I do is that I feel like educators have a very specific kind of impact on people's lives in that we all kind of have unlike almost any other profession we all kind of have stories or 
people, you know, teachers from our childhood or stories about teachers from our childhood that really made some sort of significant impact on us, whether it be elementary school, middle school, high school, college, whatever. We all kind yes. of have that experience. Yes. And so I wanted to ask you as someone that's been in education for, you know, you know, you're just getting into education after 30 years, right? <laughs> still getting <laughs> still getting the lay of the land. Right. I'm, I'm curious, what was it? Do you remember if there was a person for you that inspired you to get into education for this to be something that you wanted to pursue in your life? Or, or how did that happen? Well, let me, let me tell you very quickly a, a very brief story that I tell my students at the beginning of the year, which is my father was a computer programmer and my mother was an English teacher, an eighth mm. grade English teacher. And when, when I graduated from college, I had planned to be a writer. And I told my mother and my father, I sat him down, I said, you're both very nice people, but I don't want to be anything like you at all. And then I went off for nine years, and I worked in L.A. and New York and Philadelphia, and I did a lot of different things. And one day I came back. I was in Chicago, and I was working at a, volunteering at a homeless shelter, and this woman who was running it was working at a grammar school, and she said, J.J., we need you to become a uh, – we need you to teach starting Monday. Our teacher quit on Friday and we need you for Monday. You didn't need a license back then. And I said, well, what do you want me to teach? And she said, well, we'd like you to teach English and computers to kids. So at the age of 30, I became my mother and my father, despite my best intentions. That's just how life tends to happen, right? As, as, as much as you try to outrun it. <laughs> I tried to outrun it, man, but I just couldn't do it. I, was, I did 25 different other things. So you're, you're telling me, Jay, that you can't outrun your childhood? Yeah, I couldn't. You're right. I couldn't. I couldn't. But I met a lot of good teachers along the way too that were inspirational, and uh, you know, I found it powerful. And so, even though your mother was a teacher, an English teacher, that wasn't something that growing up for you, you're like, I absolutely have to follow in her footsteps. Because actually, my mother and my stepmother both also teachers as well. So I, I have a oh, similar wow. experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think that. You know, I tried not to be my mother and my father, you know, and yeah. I, I, my, my plan when I was young was I was going to go to law school and then I was going to become a senator and then I was going to become president of the United States and then I was going to play third base for the White Sox. That was my basic plan. Well, so, Jay, I mean, uh, you could still be president, you know. I mean, <laughs> you're, you'd be pretty young for, for presidents these days, right? These days. <laughs> yeah, I think those days are, you know, the p political days are gone. But, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm just saying, if you asked me at 14 what I was going to do, that was the plan. I, I was then, definitely with you in terms of third base for the White Sox. I think I had a, I had a similar ambition, yeah. In those, did you say, nine years that you spent in different places yeah. working, were you doing writing then? Oh, absolutely. I've been writing my whole life, uh, but I've been, um, at the time, and I would say phenomenally unsuccessful. I went to New York I, to be a writer. I actually went to law school briefly until they threw me out. Yeah. I went to Lecter's Law School. They threw me out for laughing too hard, I always say. But anyway, <laughs> I moved up to New York City, and I always say I was I was a waiter and not a writer. I was writing, but I wasn't making any money at it. And I always said I went to New York and I was just one letter off because I wanted to be a writer, but I wanted to be a waiter. So, <laughs> well, Jay, like I, well, like you said, if you're going to be unsuccessful, you might as well do it phenomenally. Yeah, 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 phenomenal, unbelievable. I mean, I, I was doing actually. I was fortunate. I met my wife. I was writing video for uh, in New York City in Manhattan. There it was. Uh, there, I don't think it still exists, but there was public access channel D. 
And I was writing a weekly comedy show, and uh, my wife auditioned for it, having me just someone off the street audition for it. I fell in love with her right away. We didn't get married for a number of years, but, um, you know, it was love at first sight for me. And so even though I never really made a living as a writer uh, in New York City, um, I did get, you know, my, my beautiful wife out of it, so it's worked out for me. Jay, I also saw that you, you've written other books on your own, not outside of the, the, the class-sourced ones. And so you've got yes. some, some other novels that you've written. And do you want to talk a little bit about the other stuff that uh, I know this, the Sideline series, right? Thank you so much for that, Peter. Yeah, I really course. appreciate it because my Sideline book series is absolutely my passion these days. I mean, beyond the, I do the crowdsource with the kids, but my Sideline book series is about an 11-year-old entrepreneur. Her parents are... Uh, basically irresponsible human beings who drink too much and do other things and do criminal acts, etc. And so they forget about her more, more or less just to feed herself. Uh, and so she winds up becoming a secret entrepreneur where she winds up starting many, many businesses and, uh, you know, lemonade stand first, but gets into eBay and everything else. And before you know it, she's a millionaire, but she can't tell anybody except uh, her 12-year-old friends that she's working with, basically, and a couple of adults. Because if she tells her parents, they'll spend it or shut it down. It'll drain it, yeah. Yeah, so it's a it's a whole book series. That only there's only been two of them out so far. Both of them are available on Amazon. And the third book's coming out in June. I I finished it. I'm just having it edited now. Yeah. And it's a five book series, uh, but I'm only I'm finishing. I again, book three is done, but I just have to uh, get it cleaned up. Actually, this coronavirus may. Uh, expedite things because my editors will have some more time. But it's it's a wonderful series that uh, my students and others have told me that they like. Young people have told me they like. I'm trying to teach financial literacy with it because one of the other things that I'm passionate about is that young people, unfortunately, and I work with the best and the brightest in Chicago, but they don't know anything about money. It's astounding how little people understand about Basically, compound interest is an example. But they, you know, kids tell me they come out of school with massive college debt, and they don't understand that how hard it is to pay that back. Well, yeah, I mean, I, it's it's my experience that I think that money is probably the most taboo thing for people to talk about. I think even more so than you know, sex, politics, and religion. I think it's money, and I think especially because in my experience, I think the less money that you have, the more the less apt you are to want to talk about money. Well said. I think you're 100% on that too, Peter. And, and unfortunately, though, those discussions should be being had, I think, at the grade school and the high school level. Not, you know, accumulation of wealth. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how to deal with money. And I'm not even just talking with people who say, well, just put it in the bank account. That's not really teaching anything because, you know, bank accounts give you very low interest, et cetera. I mean, it, it doesn't, that's not really the game. You know, it's it's far more complicated and interesting than that you know but these kids don't get taught anything yeah jay and and i i wanted to ask too about uh your writing process for you i mean are you someone that is uh all about you know do you schedule a certain time you know you know it's it's seven o'clock i'm gonna get up and i'm gonna do two hours worth of writing or is it a little more free form of just whenever you feel inspired to write or what do you like as a writer in that way what's your process like um well Peter, I'm I'm sorry to say I'm a little bit of an anarchist. Oh, do tell. So what I mean by that is is that I have no schedule ever, almost. And uh, so 
this it looks like we're going to be um, we're going to be off for let's just say a month right now. Yeah. I, you know, and it may be longer. But I can tell you that I will be writing. I'll be working on a novel while this entire time. But when at what hour I don't actually know. But I do know that my best writing does happen in the morning. Mm. So tomorrow morning, my plan would be to wake up and start writing something, but I don't know what it's going to be yet. I mean, it's going to be, I have three or four different projects that are up, and it'll be just like, whatever one hits me, it's 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 bizarre, but I, I wake up in the middle of the night, and i got to write that down. i got to go start writing it, and then my wife will say, what were you doing? And I said, I just writing this new idea I had, and she said, well, what about the other idea? I said, well, I don't know what happened, but I'm on this one now. So what happens is I just write the one that I feel most passionate about, and uh, I told my daughter, I, I texted my daughter uh, yesterday, I said, um, I'm writing a book called In the Fullness of Time. And she called me today and said, what it's about? And I said, I can't wait to find out. I don't know what it's about. <laughs> you I know what? Like, I am a sucker for a great title, and yeah. sometimes that's enough. Right. That's it. And so I'm like, I got to figure out what it is. But I think it's, you know, I think it's apocalyptic, you know, whatever, but everything works out fine. That's all I got right now. But I'll just start <laughs> writing it, and then it will, it, it will come. You know, if you, I believe in my heart. I, I actually, I'm more of a playwright than I am a novelist, or maybe not, but I've written and produced, my plays have been produced a lot more successfully than people have read my, my books, but when I start writing the plays down, or the books, I think of Alice Walker, who, when she wrote The Color Purple, at the end of it, she said, I'd like to thank the characters for coming, and what she meant was that she didn't know what was going to happen next, and... Yeah. She just like listened to her characters, and then her characters told her, and she just was the transcriber, and that's the way I feel too. I was just thinking about this, and I'm trying to remember the guys. Oh, uh, Harlan Ellison, the the sci-fi famous sci-fi writer who's you know Star Trek and all that stuff. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, there's always a quote that I think about when I think about what you just said, which is that people used to come up to him at conventions and on the street, and they would ask him, Harlan, where do you get your ideas at? And he would always say, Schenectady. And she's like, that's the, that's the only way you can say it. I have no idea where they come from. Just Schenectady, <laughs> New York is where they come from. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea either. You know, I'll tell you one very funny story. I wrote this, uh, I wrote this, play, this children's play um, many years ago. It was a musical. My wife read the music. I wrote the book. But my daughter was five years old, and I had this idea of two ducks who couldn't get onto the uh, ark because they have, Noah was doing it alphabetically. And by the time they got to realize that what was happening, Noah was already on the letter E, so they couldn't get on. They had to they had to take their way on. They had to come up with new new identities, et cetera. But anyway, I started writing this play, and my five year old comes up to me with her other with her five year old friend, and she goes, "What are you doing, Dad?" I said, "I'm writing Noah's Ark, children's musical." She said, "What's it about?" And I told her, and she said, "How far are you?" I said, "I'm five pages into it." She goes, "Well." what happens next? I said, I don't know. And they said, well, we'll come back in 10 minutes. So they came back in 10 minutes and I wrote 10 minutes more. And then I said, well, what happens next? I said, I don't know. They go, okay, we'll be back in 10 minutes. And they just kept coming back. <laughs> like it was just assumed that I would just write the whole story that day. And I did, but it was, it was so funny. These little girls telling me what happens next. And I said, I don't know. And they go, okay, dad, we'll be back in 10 minutes. And so that's how I wrote the play. And it was just so funny because I was just listening to the characters talk to me. I didn't really change a word afterwards. It just the story came to me out of a pressure cooker, I guess, or whatever. But anyway, that's just that's just my process. I really don't know. I mean, tomorrow I don't know what I'm writing. 
<laughs> I know it's in the fullness of time, and I don't know what's going to happen. All right. Well, we'll get back to you in 10 minutes and see if you have any developments. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Jay, you've been in education for, like you said, over 30 years, and this is something I like to ask a lot of people that are either, um, I guess, I'd ask any, all the, most of my guests, which is in the, that amount of time, what is what you can think of as, it doesn't have to be the greatest, but what is a great lesson that you've learned about education? First of all, I mean, in terms of the um, various, the internet, et cetera, that's really exploding, et cetera. But what I've learned about education more than anything else is is that, and generally is, is that you have to be, you go in with a sense of humility and not with a sense of arrogant understanding. Every time I think I understand somebody, I just realize there's so much more backstory to the kid or the student that I don't know, and the more backstory I do know, the more I generally respect the, the student, you know? Kids that I find that are non-motivated, you just got to figure out what is it that makes them tick, and if you can if you can, make, you can figure that out, you can help them, and if you don't, you think you've been a failure, and then a kid comes back to you 10 years later and said, hey, the one thing you said to me changed my life, and you're like, I don't even remember saying that, man. You know, I mean, everything I tried to do, I thought, you didn't hear anything. So what you're telling me, Jay, is that we're back to empathy. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> no, that's 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 perfect. It's synchronicity. Right. We've we've made it back. <laughs> I think you're right. Yes. And then, well what would you say is the greatest lesson you've learned about writing? Um, you know, I think the greatest thing about writing, and I, and I I think that I try to teach it to my students is that it's cathartic to write. Just to do it itself is 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 a healing. And also the idea, the genuine idea that everything you write has to be this akin to a biblical text is a mistake. The process itself is very, very healing to write. It helps me very much, but I also know that um, if I get quiet, the story will come to me, the, student, the characters will come to me, they'll tell me what they want to tell me. It's, it's, it's very much about the stillness, you know, you just sit there and listen to these characters talking to you. And it's, I think, about sort of listening to other human beings, too, you know. I mean, I'm talking too much now, but the more I listen to you, the better understanding I have of who you are. Yeah. I think the characters are all out there waiting to be read. And I actually wrote a play, a very bad play, about a guy whose characters we didn't finish sort of gang up on and are very aggravated with them. That, you know, why didn't you finish me? Like, I don't know. I, I abandoned you. I'm sorry. I think that's a great segue, Jay, because one of the last things that I wanted to ask you right now is that I had saw, too, that you are the author of 10 short plays to read before you die, and I want you to give me at least one to two of them that we need to read while we're all working from home, while we're all in self, you know, our, our social distancing and in quarantine. Can you give us, like, two short plays that we should read while we're, while we're doing that, while we're all at home? Thank you so much again for your interest, man. But uh, I would love you to read uh, The End of a Perfect Game. It's about a uh, professional pitcher who's one pitch away from throwing a perfect game in the World Series, and he decides at that moment that he's not sure that, that being a pitcher is what he wants to do for a living. And he goes through this existential crisis, and uh, he's got to get talked out of it, whether or not he's going to throw the last pitch or not. It's a, it's a very funny story, and it's been performed all over the world, and I, I love that play. It, it, if you read that play, you'll... You'll understand me is all I can say. 
Well, I'm a, I don't know, if, Jay, I am a huge baseball fan, and so to keep with the baseball analogies, you could not have picked anything more in my wheelhouse. That's perfect. Oh, that's so great. You've got to read that play. I've got to. I'm going to send you a copy. If you send me your ether request, I'll send you a copy. You don't have to buy it. That sounds yeah. great. Thank you so much, Jay. Well, well, that was all that I that was all that I had for you. And uh, so we can expect uh, over the next couple months or, or so. You said you've got your next uh, sideline book that's going to be coming out. Yes. Let and, me just let me just. I, I I know we're done, but I just would say the other book that I mean, the other play that. Um, oh yeah, go ahead. Might, because there were two, and I just want to. I don't want your audience to be like aggravated that I didn't give you two. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, the other one is probably this uh, thing called Dr. J's Magic Spray, and uh, it's about a guy who's a carnival barker who sells a spray that makes you tell the truth about how you feel about relationships, and it's a pretty funny play, and that also has been done all over the world, and uh, and I think people would appreciate that one um, and get a deeper understanding of me a little bit, too. But anyway, yeah, thank you. I will definitely um, continue with my sideline series, and... I'll send you a copy of uh, the ten plays. All right, and and positivity zombies, right? That's what we're, we're going to be working on over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, the zombie one. I literally just came up with it the last two days, and I don't exactly know what happens yet. But it's a positive zombie story, yes. And uh, I'll I'll send you a link to that when it's up, uh, in case you want to write a chapter. Oh, that sounds fantastic, Jay. Well, thank you, thank you so much for for taking the time and, and for having the conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. Loved it, Peter. All right, that was this week's show. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on the show. Like I said, we want to hear from you during this weird, weird time to tell us about what your experience has been like as a teacher and also as a parent or as a student, what your e-learning situation is like, what your online classes are like. Just shoot us an email at teacherslounge at niu.edu and tell us if there's any topics that is related to everything that's going on that we should be talking, we should be covering on this show. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, of course, subscribe, leave a rating, everything. That's the best way to make sure that we hear from more people, we expand our audience, and we get to hear even more stories. A special thanks, of course, to Jay Rehack for being on this week's episode, and thanks to the Rockford area band Kind Ups for the awesome music that you hear in every episode of Teacher's Lounge. Kind Ups is spelled K-I-N-D-O-V-E-S, like sweet and nice birds. You can find more of their music on SoundCloud and their appearance on Sessions from Studio A. Thanks to Spencer Tritt for making our wonderful Teacher's Lounge logo, and I have been your host, Peter Medlin, and we will be back with more Teacher's Lounge very, very soon. Have a good week.